0: Lord, as we gather we are really grateful to you again for the freedom of opportunity to worship openly as we can here in America at this time. And Father, we're grateful that your power prevails wherever uh, people are meeting today and whether they have to meet in secret or not, you are there with them and we are one with them in spirit. Lord, as we look around today at the beautiful mountains, we're reminded of the majesty of your power, the fact that all things are in your hands. And even as uh, the Lord taught us that even the single sparrow falling to the ground is not unknown to the Father, and therefore we should be constantly reminded of your concern for our needs uh, beyond our ability to even comprehend your great Uh, concern for us. And so, Lord, as we look at your word today, I ask that we will recognize your sovereignty, your love for us, and your desire to make us into the men and women you want us to be. Guide us in our thoughts and in our understanding of these matters today. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. I'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 37. Begin reading at verse 18. Genesis 37, verse 18. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him, and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, A wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph Joseph of his tunic, the varicolored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. We remember, it's been a couple of weeks now since we last uh, talked about this subject, that Joseph was sent by his father to go find his brothers. Because of the drought in the land, the uh, brothers had taken the the, the great herds of their father Jacob, and they had moved to the north, up into the, the region around Shechem, and uh, had apparently been feeding the animals there, and then had moved on. But they had failed to send word back, apparently, to Jacob. So he was concerned. They had been gone for a while, and he hadn't heard of their welfare. And so he decided to send uh, Joseph to find out about the brothers, what's going on, how are the flocks faring, and so forth. And so we noted that uh, Jacob had sufficient faith, in Joseph's ability to take care of himself, to be willing to send his son, his favored son, off on a, on a relatively long trek. Uh, I don't know how we might compare it today. I suppose it might be like sending one of our children off in an automobile to drive to Seattle or something, not in terms of the distance, but in terms of the relative uh, concern a parent might have for the distance the child had to travel away from the overseeing eye of the parents. Well, he traveled the 50 miles or so up to Shechem and he wandered around there, you remember, could not find his brothers, and then he met a man. We're not, the man's not identified to us, but the man told him that he had heard them say they were going on to Dothan, which is to the north of Shechem. And so he went on to Dothan, and uh, it's as he's arriving in the fields around Dothan, about another 16 miles or so, north and a little bit east of Shechem, that this event that we're reading about here takes place. He had no idea, of course, as he was journeying to Dothan, that his life was about to be radically transformed, that he never again would walk from Hebron to Shechem and from Shechem to Dothan. In fact, he'd never again walk in the promised land. Certainly none of these things crossed his mind, or he probably wouldn't have continued his journey. Probably would have turned around and went home. Hard to think what was going through his mind. You know, what does go through a person's mind as they're walking alone uh, along a road with a project in mind. But we discover that as he was coming to meet his brothers, his life was about to be changed. Now, remember, much of what comes about in Joseph's life is certainly partially the responsibility of his own actions. He had been, uh, in effect, bragging about the dreams that God had given him, and in so doing, he had alienated his brothers. The fact that his father had given him this special tunic, which uh, we noted was not simply a, a garment that was fancier than the brothers' garments, but was a garment which denoted preeminence denoted leadership, and, and so his brothers hated him for it. And so as he is now approaching them, they see him a, a long ways off, and, and of course the tunic is easily identifiable, and so we see them now plotting together. Joseph's arrogance, and I, I think we cannot get away from this, even though I have read, and you certainly have read too, commentators who, who put Joseph on a pedestal here and have no ill to say about Joseph whatsoever. And he's totally innocent in all of this. I don't believe it. Uh, Joseph was a human. He was uh, subject to sin as we are, subject to problems as we are. He was in his late teens to early 20s, a time when uh, pride uh, seems to bloom a little more fully than it has in years before. And certainly he demonstrated this. But his pride, his arrogance, was about to receive a very sudden And a very swift blow. And this young man is going to spend years in what I would call the school of humility. Have you been in the school of humility? Every once in a while, God puts us through a period of time in our lives where we have uh, every reason to be humble and no reason to be proud. Uh, Because God knows that pride has a tendency to well up inside us. Uh, even when we think we're not uh, subject to it any longer, it, it, it comes at us from our blind side. And in order for this young man's intellectual abilities, his leadership abilities, all to, be, to come forth and to be used uh, to their fullest, he's got to be taught humility. And, of course, Jesus gave us the example of that, right? He who is to be the leader of, the all, of all must be the servant of all. And learning servanthood in order to attain leadership is extremely important within the framework of the Christian church. Now, it should be within the framework of any organization, but out in the world, as you well know, uh, it's kind of dog-eat-dog, dog, claw your way to the top, and once you're up there, use all the bennies, right, that you get from that position to keep everybody else in their place, and, and self-exaltation tends to reign. He's going to end up as prime minister of one of the most powerful, if not in that day, the most powerful land. Therefore, God needs to teach him a thing or two about humility. This, I think, is an example of what God is willing to do to bring his people in line with his will for for them, for us. God has a plan for each of our lives, and sometimes we, we just kind of throw that out in a lighthearted way, you know, they're, they're, God has something good for each one of us. Well, he does. But that good can be the product of a very rough road, as uh, Joseph will quickly discover. I, I think it's so important, and this keeps coming out through Scripture, because there are, uh, out, out there today there are those who are teaching the opposite. And, and that is, our comfort is not God's highest priority. You know, we, need, we need to keep that in mind. God's highest priority is not to make life easy for us. Not to make it, you know, just a, uh, you know, a f- sensual joy for us. That's not God's highest priority. God's priority is that we do His will. And He may radically change our lifestyle in order to accomplish that. He may make life very uncomfortable in order to achieve His purpose. And, and as I was thinking those <laughs> thoughts, this passage in 2 Corinthians, that I think is on your outline there, came to mind, and so I noted that down. I thought it might fit in here. This is Paul telling, of course, about what he had been through. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. You know, whenever we have a tendency to, to whine and complain about the difficulties through which we have been put, we simply need to go to the scripture and read a few examples. Of, of God's great men and women of history and uh, compare ourselves, maybe. Verse 24, four. Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers." Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without, often without food, in cold and exposure. Pretty well covers the gamut. There aren't too many things we can think of that we could throw into there to, to make it much worse. And in in many instances, those things all went together, you know, while he's floating around a day and a half in the deep, he was hungry, he was cold, and a lot of these things all came at one time. So it wasn't even one at a time type problem to face, but sometimes they came in from several sides at once, just like Job, you know, one account, one account, another account, and every time he turned around, another blow, until he was left with nothing. Uh, Sometimes God has to do that in order to get us to the place where he can use us. God has to refine us. He has to chip us away. You know, God's sort of like the master sculptor, and he's chipping away to to shape us into the image of Christ. And that chipping isn't always fun, because what we're losing sometimes is something we may consider dear uh, in our flesh. And yet God is going to, to take that. Now, was Paul, was Paul punished here? Was God punishing Paul in all these situations because he'd been a bad boy? No. Absolutely not. What we have here is a, a record of the consequences of bearing the cross of Christ. To literally bear the cross of Christ, uh, not literally, you know, dragging a piece of wood around, but uh, to, to bear the cross of Christ as Christ in, intended it, in the Gospels there, as he states that, uh, is is, uh, going to be costly to us, especially in the eyes of the world. And sometimes it's going to be very, very painful. And all you have to do is read down through history. Uh, Read uh, uh, the book called um, By Their Blood, 20th Century Christian Martyrs. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs, the classic. And as you read down through there, you discover... Whoa, when you come to that passage in the latter part of, of Hebrews 11 where it talks about people being sawn in sunder uh, and all of this, that's not far fetched. Uh, just about every heinous method of making a person miserable you can think of has been practiced on Christians. And so it's not like God's not there, but God allows it to happen because He has a greater purpose than our comfort. These difficulties help to purify Paul and to help purify the church. And they at least serve as proof of the worth of spreading the gospel. Well, one of the brothers, as Joseph was coming, suggested that they kill him and throw him into a pit, literally a cistern. Now they could cover up their deed, by telling Jacob that a wild beast had eaten him. Notice you already, you already begin to see the, 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 that which we experience in our own lives often. We, we, we sin in one area, and, and instead of getting that area cleaned up, we decide to cover it up with another sin and cover that up with another sin. Pretty soon we have this big mountain, and we're sitting on there in total fear that the whole thing's going to blow up on us, which, if you really believe in God, you know it's going to. Because God says, be sure your sin will find you out. And so it's extremely important to constantly keep our sins confessed. And uh, as many say, keep a short list with God. So they're going to try to cover up their deed by by going to their father and say, Oh, father, we don't know what happened, but this poor son of yours whom we love so dearly, uh, you know, he must have been eaten by a wild beast because here's his bloody garment. We just found it out there, <laughs> perchance, you know. Now, that wouldn't have been so far-fetched, really. Uh, Jacob could easily have believed that because lions and bears, for example, were common to Palestine in those days. They aren't today, but they were in those days. And so the story could have been and probably would have been and actually is, as we read later on, quite believable. Hundreds of years later, David, you remember, tells of killing a lion and killing a bear in defense of his flocks. And so we know that lions and bears uh, lived in that part of the world at that time. The idea is for behind killing him is explained here in, in the passage. Uh, the idea was that if he were dead, then it would be obvious that the dreams that he had that all were going to bow down and worship him would come to naught because he was dead. Now, obviously, nobody's going to worship him when he was dead. And by that, they could prove that they were nothing but the wild hallucinations of a megalomaniac. Well, Reuben apparently came over to join the brothers just after the initial statements had been made, but in time to hear the statement that they were going to kill him and throw him in a pit. And so Reuben being the eldest, he felt an obligation to protect Joseph for the sake of his father, not for Joseph's sake, but for the sake of, of his father. I, I don't think Reuben liked Joseph's arrogance more, any more than any of the other brothers did. In fact, in some ways, Reuben should have had a greater animosity against Joseph because being given the garment that he was given, uh, Joseph was in effect being put in Reuben's place even though such a statement flat outright hadn't yet been made. But that was the implication. And, but in, in Reuben's case, he had already created a big mess for himself, I remember, in, in having this illicit relationship with, uh, with Jacob's concubine. And so I think there was a bit of humility finally beginning to creep into Reuben here as he recognized his own sin and he felt that killing Joseph could not do anything but make matters worse, at least in his case. And so, who was really responsible for making the suggestion, let's kill him and throw him in a pit? Well, we don't know. You know, Amongst the ten brothers, it could have been any one of them, except it probably wasn't Reuben, obviously, and it probably wasn't Judah, as we'll find a little bit later. But it could have been any of the others. Most likely, though... It was probably either Simeon or Levi, because both of those boys had already uh, slit a few throats and ran a sword through a few people. So killing was uh, not so difficult for them to think about. And of course, later on, uh, Jacob would castigate them for being quick to shed blood and bring, bring uh, you know, honor on the name of Jacob. And so, uh, it's it's very probable that one of those two brothers, maybe in concert, uh, were urging uh, that he be killed. Reuben counseled moderate action. To outright murder him was rash. It was quick, and above all, it was final. (laughs) What if this wasn't the right thing for us to do? You can't undo it if you kill him. You know, outright kill him. Uh... Certainly Reuben had in his mind buying a little bit of time here, if nothing else, in throwing him into a pit. He didn't want Joseph's blood on his hands. Now whether Jacob ever knew the truth or not, Reuben would know the truth, and God would know the truth to whatever extent Reuben believed or trusted in God. And so he felt that if we throw Joseph into a cistern, and then just let nature take its course, they wouldn't be directly responsible for his death, only indirectly, in that they threw him in the pit, but they didn't kill him. He just happened to starve to death down there, that's all. Uh, or, you know, whatever. Uh, that's about the only thing that could happen down in a cistern, I suppose, unless it had enough water and drowned, which it didn't, out in the wilderness and in a desert. That's another statement, too, which seems to indicate drought because we're told that when he's thrown into the pit, there was no water in it, uh, which indicated it hadn't rained for a long time uh, for any water to collect in um, in the cistern. But the passage goes on to tell us that Reuben had an ulterior motive here. He intended to come back later when the other brothers weren't looking, possibly after dark, and get Joseph out of there and to see to Joseph's safe delivery back to his father. Now, why would Reuben do this? Well, certainly one of the reasons that Reuben would do this was already expressed here. He didn't want the blood of his, of his brother on his hands. But I think there was another motive here. I think that he hoped that by rescuing Joseph, Jacob's um, thoughts towards Reuben would be turned towards the good side. Jacob had some ill thoughts concerning his son because of the incest that he had uh, committed. And so he thought maybe this would undo that somewhat, maybe even possibly in the, in the long run, restore him to the position of priority in his father's eyes over the sons of Jacob. Well, Joseph arrived, unaware of all of this. Now, he probably saw the brothers gathered together in a circle uh, before he got there, but Ah, you know, apparently he had no premonition of what might happen here. He just kind of walks up to them as big as life as if they ought to have joy in seeing him. Uh, You know, he's still young, not too perceptive yet. And uh, considering their reactions before and the way he had been treated by some of the brothers out in the field, which precipitated his tattling on them and uh, getting himself into hot water there, uh, you would think that he might be a little bit tentative about this and walk up and say, hey, guys, uh, are you okay? Stand off a few yards, you know, are guys okay? You know, good. Back down the trail. But no, he just blunders right into the middle of them. And, uh, you know, they probably said when he was coming on, oh, Joseph, good to see you. Come on over here. <laughs> as soon as, they got, as he got there, they grabbed him, and the Scripture tells us they stripped off that that hated garment, that garment of priority, that, that emblem, that symbol of their father's love for Joseph above all of the others. It was a detested thing in their eyes. It's a wonder they didn't just tear the thing up and stomp it into the ground. It's a good thing they didn't later, you know. That's the only thing they had to kind of prove to their father that, quote, he had been eaten by a wild beast. They probably, of course, had already thought about that, and so they didn't tear the thing up or or destroy it. Now, put yourself in Joseph's uh, place here for a moment. As they stripped off his garment and as they held him, do you suppose they were quiet? (laughs) I think they were throwing all kinds of invectives at him. They were saying all kinds of unkind things about this young man, and they were hurtful things certainly. And they were very, very rough with him. I don't think they were gentle at all with him because this, this hatred had welled up inside them and it was to the boiling point. Now, they had been away for weeks. You'd think it'd be really quieted down, but it just was flashed, you know, kind of a flash boil thing. And Joseph, did his mind turn to God at that moment? as he was being wrestled and and, and dragged around and his garment being stripped off and these names were being yelled at him and he was in the midst of a hostile crowd, did his mind turn to God? Did he cry out to God? I kind of think he might have. But I think to him, God must have seemed to be half a universe away. You ever been in a situation where it seems like all hell has broken loose and you cry out to God and there seems to be no answer and and you think God's gone, you know? God's not listening. God's, you know, over on Alpha Centauri or something, you know, rather than here. Well, God was there, right? God was watching it. God was superintending. And as we go on through the passage, we see how clearly God was superintending. Obviously, it was God's idea in Reuben's mind that got them to change the thought from instantly killing him to putting him in a pit. That had to be God's superintendency there, because Reuben is not noted for having been a particularly wise or or, or a young man or a man of of great leadership ability. (coughs) I think that as they took him over to the Cistern, I, I don't think they gently lowered him into it. I think they kind of flung him into the, into the thing. They didn't care if he broke a leg or a broken arm or whatever else happened to him. I mean, after all, they were expecting him to die down there. So now you're Joseph. You're in the bottom of a cistern. Now cisterns in those days were you know if you can kind of imagine this, they're sort of bottle-shaped. It's, uh, it's an area that's been hollowed out. Possibly there was a a kind of a little opening of some sort to start with, and they just simply widened it out. And and generally speaking, if it was a cistern that they intended to uh, use very often, they plastered the inside of it so that it would be watertight. And uh, the idea was that rainwater would run and collect in there, and then you have water when you need it. And usually there's a fairly small opening at the top, obviously big enough to put a person through, Uh, because sometimes, you know, that's really what you had to do to get the water out. But uh, uh, small enough so that it was really uh, not, you're not talking about a well with sides straight up and a big opening, you're talking about a small opening, maybe three or so feet in diameter at the top, and it swells out below it down to the bottom and across like this. And it's too deep for you to jump up and grab the opening and pull yourself up. And the, the walls are smooth, so you can't climb the walls. And if there's no water in it, you're stuck. There is no way to get out by your own strength. You can't jump high enough and you can't climb the smooth wall. So what option is there? But to sit down and ponder your situation. And I think that's what Joseph had to do. To sit down in the dust at the bottom and say, oh, what am I going to do now? I think he did a lot of yelling. You "You guys get me out of here, don't you? No, dad's going to kill you. I I think as he sat at the bottom of that cistern, he began to ponder his life. It wasn't much to ponder. It hadn't been too many years yet. But I, I think that he finally realized that his brothers hated him enough to see him dead. And I think that was almost like a bolt out of the blue to him. I don't think he really understood that before, really. And I think he began to contemplate his life and think, Maybe I should have done a few things differently. (laughs) Maybe I should have kept my mouth shut about those dreams. Maybe I should not have worn my tunic so proudly. Well, whatever he thought, his life was now a shambles, it appeared. And to him, unless his brothers had a change of heart, there was no hope because they were out in a, in a kind of a wilderness area. That is, they weren't near a town. Uh, There was nobody else likely to hear his voice. And he would literally die of hunger and thirst down there in the bottom of that cistern. Let's go back to uh, chapter 37 again and pick up with verse 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Well, that work was, um, you know, hunger-inducing, wrestling with their brother and throwing him into the pit. And so they went over and they sat down to eat. You know, it, it just reminds me of some, uh, and I won't bring up the actual details because it's they're kind of ghastly. But of of the Nazi SS officers in World War II who could sit around eating lunch while they did some of their dastardly deed. You you just wonder sometimes about how callous people can become. I'm sure they heard his voice off in the distance yelling. And it had to be, you know, smiting them in some way or another. Maybe they were just saying, "Here, boy, yell your head off. Uh, We don't want to see you again. But this caravan just um, accidentally came by, right? Talk about providence. Things that we don't even credit for being something that God's had his hand in. Obviously, is the product of the work of God. There is no way that this caravan came by by accident, coincidentally. This was a caravan that God brought by at that very moment. Now, what's interesting is considerable detail is given about this caravan. It doesn't just say, a caravan came by, they pulled Joseph up and sold him to him. It says, well, first of all, the word translated caravan caravan means traveling company. So there's this this group uh, of people coming along. It's only used twice in the Old Testament, here and then one time in Isaiah. The typical trading company of those days was made up of several people, could be several dozen, could be a hundred or more people traveling together, and they traveled together for mutual protection, sort of like the convoy system uh, in World War I and World War II to, to move ships across the Atlantic. You, you, you travel together for safety, safety in numbers, because in those days, especially in this part of the world, there was no law and order. There, there was no superintending power that saw to it that all the roads were safe. That's one of the reasons later on when Rome comes to power and Rome establishes its authority over the vast domain of the Mediterranean, uh, that... that Time is often referred to as the Pax Romana, the period of Roman peace, because Rome brought to that part of the world a greater degree of security than it had ever known historically before. And even then, it wasn't foolproof, right, because Jesus talked about the man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who got beat up by bandits and uh, left to die. Well, we know in our society, with all the law and order we have, that uh, that happens all the time. So... Uh, Anyway, as these caravans were traveling, they, they were subject to raiding parties. Uh, and so they, they traveled collectively to, to protect themselves. And usually some of the men were armed, maybe most of the men were armed, so they could fight off small raiding parties. And so here was this long line of camels and, and these people traveling together on down to Egypt. The... Details concerning to this caravan include, first of all, it says they, it was being run by Ishmaelites. Now, Ishmael was the half-brother of their grandfather Isaac. So we're talking about relatives coming by here, in effect. We read, or we did read, about Ishmael's descendants back in the 25th chapter of Genesis, and we won't do that again. But uh, the scripture tells us they settled down in the region around the head of the Gulf of Aqaba. If you remember, the Red Sea comes up and it has two little uh, extremities that stick up sort of like the ears of a rabbit. And, and the one that goes over towards the northeast is the Gulf of Aqaba. And the one that goes over to the northwest is the Gulf of Suez. And the Gulf of Aqaba is just simply an extension of the uh, rift zone that comes down out of Lebanon through the Jordan Valley. And and they had settled around the head of that uh, on both sides, on the Sinai side and on the Arabian side. And that was the area in which uh, they were living. But they were obviously operating caravans out of there. And this was one of those caravans. They were a desert dwelling nomadic people whose responsibility, at least in part, was to operate these caravans. They also, of course, probably functioned as raiders, too, from time to time. So they were kind of on both sides of, of the situation. So strange as it might seem, these brothers encounter a caravan of their distant cousins. Secondly, we discovered that it says that the caravan was coming from Gilead, which is the hill country just to the east of the Jordan River. So they would have been coming from the territory directly east of where they were. Uh, The country of Jordan, if you cross the the Jordan River and go up the uh, steep escarpment on the eastern side, you you come up to the Dome of Gilead. It's the high area of 3,000 to 4,000 feet in elevation uh, directly east of Israel. Today it's in the land of, um, of Jordan. Now, it tells us the caravan was coming from Gilead. It probably didn't originate in Gilead. The caravans tended to originate in Damascus uh, and and then come down through. Now, they had come through Gilead on their way towards uh, Egypt. Now, they probably stopped in Gilead and did some trading trading there, as we'll note here in a minute. Uh, We're we're told what the cargo was that they were carrying. Sounds like a kind of useless cargo to us, (laughs) but uh, it was a very, very uh, high-value cargo that they were carrying. We're told that there were, uh, they were carrying with them aromatic gum, which is uh, thought to have been the resin from one of the many shrubs. Some feel from the tragacanth, which is known as the goat's thorn, which uh, gives a certain aromatic gum when you uh, extract it from the, the shrub. Secondly, we're told that they were carrying balm, and this is where the possibility for them having stopped in Gilead uh, is, uh, is or comes up because this is thought to be a, son of a sort of a balsam that uh, comes from the comifer tree or shrub actually, and is known in scripture as the balm of Gilead, and it's actually a um, it's kind of a sticky fragrant, astringent substance that was used as a salve to put on wounds and abrasions and so forth, uh, commonly used in that part of the day, uh, part of the world. But exactly what plant it came from, you look it up, you discover, they say, well, it could be shrubs of this variety or shrubs of that variety. They don't really know. It's been too long ago. And then myrrh, which comes, it is believed, from the resin of a bark of the lodanum shrub, which is common to parts of the uh, Near Eastern world and uh, was noted, of course, for its strong aromatic qualities and is often used in burial processes. And as you know, the Egyptians were big on burial, <laughs> preservative burial. And uh, some of these, of course, would have been used in their mummifying process, and so it was very desirable. So we're talking about a high-value Cargo here that is being carried by this particular caravan. We're thirdly told that they were bound for Egypt. And certainly that's what they told the brothers. And the brothers thought, Egypt. That's far enough away. We'll sell him to them and we'll never see the guy again. Good idea. Judah now emerges into the limelight. Judah is a very enigmatic character. And we'll be looking at, uh, I think it's the next chapter, yes, in which Judah plays the lead role. And we're going to find some things about his character that are a little bit on the dark side. But later on, this man's going to emerge again. Much later, he'll emerge again and will demonstrate a certain Christ-like character in, in what he does later on. And even here, we see it uh, to some extent. Judah... I think, was given this thought by God. Just as Reuben, I believe, was given his thought by God, so this was given to Judah by God. I don't think Reuben, was very, uh, Reuben or Judah were very enthusiastic about killing their brother. Not that they loved him. Not that they didn't feel that the kid was a jerk. But they didn't feel he was bad enough that they ought to kill him. They didn't want his blood on their hands. You know, God works with us according to how we've allowed God to develop our character. He rarely just suddenly puts something into our character that was never there before. That's why he wants us to walk daily with him and study his word so that our character can be developed and we can learn the God-like ways to live. And then when God comes and moves upon us, he's got a foundation to work with there. And he's got something whereby he can move us in the direction he wants us to go. And I, I think that uh, even though Judah in the next chapter doesn't seem to have very many godly characteristics, we, we have to uh, remember that some very godly people in the pages of Scripture have done some very awful things. And at that point, we need to be reminded of the fact that uh, none of us, not a one of us, is immune to sin. Not one of us is immune to heinous sin. And we need to keep that in mind, and it helps keep us humble and helps keep us close to the Lord because that's the only way to avoid it. Had David been walking with God as he ought to have been walking with God at that moment, he wouldn't have gotten himself into the trouble. He got himself in with Bathsheba. But that was the product of a long list of things he had been doing that had been preparing him uh, for being open to the disaster which struck. And so certainly there must have been uh, something going on good in Judah's life. That would at least make him receptive to this thought and be willing to um, present it to his brothers. Might have been easy for Simeon and Levi just to say, "I do the kid in. But the others, I think, were a little bit queasy about the whole operation. It's one thing to talk about getting rid of somebody. It's another thing to actually do the deed. So what Judah does is to present this plan and emphasize the profit motive. There's profit in this kid. If you just let him die down there, what profit is there in that? But if we sell him to uh, the Ishmaelites, he'll be worth something to us. He hasn't been worth much so far. But now at least be worth something. I think the real profit that was coming to Judah's mind was the prophet in their not being responsible for his blood. The same thought that was in Reuben's mind. I think that the few shekels of silver, I mean, they were a wealthy family. What, what's a few shekels of silver here or there? I, I think the real thought in Judah's mind is then we won't be responsible for his death. And that is profitable. Besides, we'll get a little silver along the way. And if he's carried off to distant Egypt, he's as good as dead because he's gone. We'll never see him again. He'll be down there as a slave and he'll live his life and die and and he'll just be totally gone out of our existence. And so to Judah, I think he was saying, this is a win-win situation. How many times do you run into those kind? Uh, We win either way. So let's do that much better than killing him. Now. Uh, to me, uh, I, I mentioned the fact that this, this caravan had to be providential. And I think this is illustrated by the fact that the Ishmaelites were even where they were. What in the world were they doing near Dothan? Now remember the trade routes in those days. Uh, I gave you a map weeks, weeks, even months ago, and, and if you go back and look that up, you, you can uh, see the, the trade routes remembering that there was one trade route that more or less followed down the plateau on the east side of the Jordan and would travel through Gilead, then the other trade route which came across from Damascus over the top of the Sea of Galilee over to the coast and down the coast uh, to Egypt. So they had obviously been traveling down the King's Highway, uh, down the, the, the route along the top of the Jordanian plateaus up there. And they had come down to Gilead. Now, what in the world had they done this for? If they kept going down the King's Highway, they could eventually l- loop in and come across towards Egypt. But they were cutting across here to l- link into the Via Mars, or the Way of the Sea, which was the primary route. And so, for whatever reasons, they were coming across to hit the main route. They apparently had made the last stop they needed to make on the King's Highway, and so they wanted to speed up the thing by coming across. Now, they could have come across at many points there are several places that they could have crossed. And once they had crossed the Jordan, they had several choices then. Why did they pick this choice? The area of Dothan had no, nothing important along it uh, for them to go as far as trade was concerned. So it had to be providential that this caravan chose that route to be there at that hour. I, I don't think caravans came through this area very much at all because it was not a main road. It was very much a secondary road that they were crossing here. And so here they they show up. God motivated them to make this choice. God can motivate the heathen to make the choices that they make. And, of course, to have them arrive at the very right moment. God was there. Now, you'll notice in this passage that... uh, in, in verse 27, we read, um, And come, let us all sell him to the Ishmaelites. Verse 28 says, Then some Midianite traders passed by. They pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. Well, think, whoa, what is this? Well, the Midianites and the Ishmaelites were commingled. The Ishmaelites were sons... Of Abraham, if you, if you remember, by Ishmael, who was the son of Hagar and Abraham. The Midianites were also sons of Abraham, by Keturah. So we're talking about people who were related here. And it seems that they uh, intermingled and intermarried, and they became one. And as far as Moses was concerned, the terms were synonymous. Midianite, Ishmaelite, Ishmaelite, Midianite, makes no difference. They're an intermingled people living together, intermarrying together. And so in this one verse, he uses two terms. The Midianites came by and he sold them to the Ishmaelites, meaning, in effect, the same people. Well, the brothers quickly agreed to Judah's plan. I think some of them were already plagued by a guilty conscience. (sighs) I <sighs> don't know if we really should do this, boy, and what's Dad going to say? Will he believe our story? Or will he feel that we did him in? I think it was with great relief that, that they agreed to Judah's plan. Yeah, this is a better plan because at least he'll still be alive and his blood won't be on our hands. We won't ever have to see him again. The, the, the result will be the same, but the process will be different. So they hailed the Midianites, pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, and bargained with him, with them over him for the price. Now you're Joseph, and you're down at the bottom of that cistern. Suddenly you see a shadow at the mouth of the cistern, and a rope drops. Whoa, they've come to their senses. Good boys. I knew that if I yelled loud enough, they would have mercy on me. And so they lift him up out, and I'm sure he expected to be more gently treated and more reverently treated, and it became quite obvious to him that they had no intention of freeing him. As they manhandled him over to the Ishmaelites, I think he begged, and the implication is later on in another passage of Scripture Uh, in the 42nd chapter, that he begged for them to free him. Have mercy on me. Let me go. But they hardened their hearts against him, and they would not listen to his pleading. They would carry that guilt to the day that they would again see Joseph. And his voice would be echoing in their ears down through the decades that would follow. You ever wonder why it is sometimes a person commits what seems like to be the perfect crime and then they go and confess it? Because even in the pagan, there's a conscience. It may be seared and calloused, but sometimes something gets through and they can't live with themselves any longer. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's not just talking about the Christian. It's talking about the pagan too. Chapter 42 Genesis verse 18 this is when the brothers have come down to Egypt to buy grain and they don't yet know who Joseph is verse 18 now Joseph said to them on the third day do this and live for I fear God if you are honest men let one of your brothers be confined in your prison but if but but as for the rest of you go carry grain to the uh, for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified that you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, and yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress came upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. I told you so, said Reuben. Not totally innocent, obviously, even though his intent was right, apparently. Joseph's voice was in their ears for decade after decade and came right to their minds when Joseph said, go, go and bring Benjamin. <laughs> so I can be, know for sure you guys are telling the truth, you're not spies. And they ah, smite. God used that to smite their souls. And to prepare them. They sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. About 240 grams, as best as we can reckon today. Which today in in silver bullion isn't much, about 80 bucks. But in those days, because of the monetary system of that time, uh, those who have studied this estimate that the silver was probably worth about $2,000 in buying power in, in that particular day. The next two weeks or so, Joseph's life is summarized in a six-word statement at the end of, the, of verse 28. Thus, they brought Joseph into Egypt. Just like that. Joseph had a lot of time walking along after this camel caravan to think about what had happened to him and what his future would be. A lot of time to pray. A lot of time to do some Self-evaluation, and yet it wasn't over. As you know, we would spend many a month and even years in prison yet ahead as God purifies this man.